0: audio ground school podcast. Hey, 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 what's up, everybody? This is Nick from Part-Time Pilot. Thanks for listening to the Part-Time Pilot audio ground school. This is the podcast that goes through part-time pilot online ground school lessons. Each and every lesson puts it in the audio format so that you can have another way to consume it and make it a little bit more accessible and easier for you to consume private palette content. So I I hope you're enjoying it and I hope I'm painting good enough pictures so you can visualize this stuff, you know, while you're walking, while you're running, or maybe driving or whatever. So last episode, episode seven, we talked about transponders, ADSB, and GPS systems. And this is all in section two of the online ground school. Section one was the introduction, which we covered in episode one. And section two is operation of aircraft systems. The reason we do this first is because I believe it's the building block of a good pilot is to know everything about your aircraft and have a good understanding of how that all works. It's just the basic fundamental building blocks of being a good pilot. So that's why we're doing that first. And we are now on today, lesson 11, which will be the fuel and oil system. This will probably cover... 30 to 40 minutes, something like that. So that's probably the only one we're going to do today, but it's a very important lesson. So let's get to it. And again, if you want to follow along with us in the online ground school, just go to parttimepilot.com, look in the menu and click on online ground school. Sign up with us today. You can follow along on these lessons. You can work completely on your own time. And then the lessons, we have the written lessons, we have videos, we have Diagrams, mnemonic devices. And then at the end of each lesson, we have a quiz. Once you get through all the lessons, then we do practice tests and we have a ton of practice tests for you after that as well. And we really get you prepared for that at FA written and beyond because we don't want you just to memorize test questions and answers. We actually want you to be a good pilot, be a better pilot, be a safer pilot and ultimately pass your check ride. So that's what we're here to do. And we have yet to have a student fail their FA written who's gone through our content. So we know it works, it's really good. So if you're out there thinking, you know, I need an online ground school and I really like this uh, podcast I'm listening to. Well, it only makes sense to get that online ground school so you can follow along and do the, uh, read the lessons and do the quizzes because when you consume this content in multiple forms of media, it's going to sink in a lot more. It's one of the hacks of studying. If you read it, if you write it, if you watch a video of it, and then if you listen to it, by the time you've done all those things, you're probably gonna understand it pretty well. All right, so let's get to fuel and oil systems. The following information should be known about your fuel system in the event of any failures, you'll be able to diagnose the problem. First thing, how many fuel tanks are, are there, and where are they? For a Cessna and a Cherokee Warrior, there are two fuel tanks, one in each wing. Okay, so the fuel tanks are stored in inside the wings, and there's two of them, again, one for each wing. How much fuel capacity is there? Again, for I'm using the example of a Cherokee Warrior. Cessna 152 is very, very similar. So whatever your aircraft is, you gotta know these questions about your aircraft. I'm using the example of a Cherokee Warrior. So for a Warrior, each wing fuel tank can hold 24 gallons of usable fuel. So again, that's each tank. And then one gallon of unusable fuel. Unusable fuel is this fuel that's sort of trapped in certain parts of the tank and you can't pump into the aircraft. So you just sort of have to fill fill the tank with that gallon. So in total, each tank ha- holds 25 gallons, but we only care about what's usable to us. So each tank has 24 gallons usable. That's a total of 48 gallons. And so whatever your aircraft is, know which each tank holds and know what the usable fuel is, not just the, it's good to know the unusable, but we really care about the usable fuel. Next thing you want to know is what type of fuel. For most small single engine propeller driven aircraft that you'll be using during your training, the aircraft fuel of choice is minimum octane 100 green or 100 LL blue, which is aviation grade the fuels are colored so when i say 100 green or 100 ll blue i that's what i mean they're because they're actually colored these colors so if you get a sample of the fuel you'll see that it's either green or blue and they're colored so that pilots and operators are able to easily determine what kind of fuel is in their aircraft so with the fuel sump in your pre pre pre-flight check which we'll get to at some point in this podcast and in an online ground school. Part of your pre-flight check is to take a sample of the fuel to see if there's any contamination or water in there. And you'll also want to look at the color and make sure it's the right color. If it's something like brown or red, then you, you have a good indication that whoever filled your tank, and this happens quite often, but whoever the fuel person was that filled your tank, filled it with the wrong fuel. And that is something you definitely don't want to do because it can cause a lot of engine issues. Your aircraft POH or AFM, so that's Pilot Operating Handbook or Approved Flight Manual, each aircraft has one of those that's basically the go-to manual for the aircraft. It may call for a grade of 80-80. 87 AV gas, it is possible to use a higher grade of aviation fuel with more lead content, such as 100 or 100 LL, if 8087 is not available, as long as the appropriate maintenance actions are made to avoid lead caused issues. So, if you don't have your fuel available and your fuel is 100 green, you cannot, you should not use 8087 AV gas. You should only go up in grade. Never down in grade. It's okay to go up in grade again if you have the appropriate maintenance actions. You, as a student pilot and as a private pilot, I would always just make sure you have exactly what your POH AFM calls for and not even mess with with doing that. And the reason we don't want to use a lower grade than what's specified for our aircraft because it may lead to destructive detonation and pre ignition. So that's why I talked about when you have the wrong grade in there. If it's a lower grade, that's even worse because. going to cause really destructive issues called detonation and pre-ignition which we'll get to in the next lesson inside your engine combustion system which can basically total your aircraft the next thing you want to know is what weight of oil is needed what kind of oil you need for your aircraft for a cherokee warrior and i'm pretty sure the Cessna, i usually fly cherokee warriors the oil of choice is w100 sae 30, 40, or 50, again, look at your POH AFM. It depends on your engine, but that's usually what it's going to be for general aviation aircraft. Next thing you want to know is how much oil is needed. For a Warrior, the minimum is two quarts of oil and a maximum of eight quarts. So you want to be between that min and max. You don't want to be a, too much oil, start leaking it everywhere, over pressurizing it. you don't want to have too less oil because then you won't have enough lubrication and cooling That the oil provides so you got to be in between two to eight most kind of aircraft recommend having about six quarts and then your flying school or club may have its own minimums as well i believe where i flew it was they wanted it to be either six or seven quarts next thing you want to know is where the fuel system vents fuel systems need to vent because the fuel vapor that creeps up with changes in temperature if not vented, this can cause a very flammable and combustible danger to your aircraft. So when it gets hot, there is the fuel creates a vapor, and that vapor fills the tank. If there's nowhere for that to rele- to leak out, it'll pressurize inside your fuel tank, and it causes a very combustible hazard. And that's why it's important to know how the aircraft fuel system vents, in a Cherokee Warrior and a Cessna 152, 172. The fuel vents are in the vent caps. So the caps that you take off to refuel and put fuel into the wings, there's a small hole in those and they vent vent out small amounts of air and, and that fuel vapor. And then there's vent drains below each wing. You can actually look and there's this little pipe and those are below the wings. So there's gonna be four total vents, two for each tank, two on each wing tank, one above on the vent cap and one below on the vent drain. The next thing you wanna know is how does the fuel get from your tanks to your engine? For a Warrior and most single prop smaller aircraft, the fuel goes from the tanks to the tank selector valve to a strainer, then to an electric pump, then to a mechanical pump, to the updraft and float type carburetor, and then into the engine. And we'll talk about this when we get to the fuel systems, we'll, different systems, and we'll show a schematic, and we have videos for that as well, which we'll post in the show notes. But generally, you wanna know that flow. You wanna know how the fuel gets from tanks into your engine. So that way, if there's ever a problem, you're not getting enough fuel flow, for example, you can have an idea or maybe diagnose what's going on. Next thing you wanna know, is what if water gets into the fuel tanks? This is why you get a sample of fuel from each tank, from the sump tank during your pre-flight check. We talked about this a little bit ago. You wanna check, get a sample of fuel and check it for any debris or water. And the reason you take these samples from the bottom of the tanks and sump is because, so the sump is always at the bottom of the tank and you wanna take your sample from that bottom. That's because water in a water and fuel mixture is going to be at the bottom. The water is more dense, so it's actually more dense than fuel, so it'll actually sink to the bottom. So you wanna take that sample from the bottom of your fuel tank, which is where the sumps are. Each type of aviation fuel is a specific color, 100 LL blue. We talked about this, aviation fuel is blue in color. So if you take a sample from below the tanks and see clear liquid and not blue, then you have water inside your tanks that needs to be purged. To purge water from fuel tanks, a pilot should drain fuel from the fuel strainer drain and the fuel tank sumps filling fuel tanks at the end of the day to the maximum at the end of each day will prevent moisture condensation by eliminating airspace inside the tanks so when you don't fill the tanks all the way up at the end of the day it's going to get cold at night you're going to get condensation inside the tanks and that condensation when it heats back up in the morning will drip down into the fuel tanks and then you have water and it eventually goes all the way down to the bottom and water is dangerous because if you get water pumped into your engine it may cause an engine out you may flame out your combustion and you may lose your engine because you're not you can't burn water right you can burn air and fuel not air and water so you really want to keep water out of your tanks and one way to do that is by filling tanks at the end of the day to prevent that moisture condensation Without airspace in the tanks, there's no chance of water vapor to be in the tanks, such that it never has a chance to condense into water. All right. So those are sort of the general things you want to know about your fuel system. Now we'll talk about a couple of the most the two types of fuel systems that your aircraft could have. I talked about you'll want to know how fuel gets from the fuel tanks to the engine. And these two different fuel systems are different in the ways that they do that. And depending on what aircraft you have you may have one or the other and you need to know which one you have those two fuel systems are the pump driven fuel system and these are generally found in aircraft with low wings so wings that are low and then gravity fed fuel systems is the other type of system and they're generally found in aircraft with high wings and the reason is is because you have a high wing and so the fuel can travel down with gravity into the engine. So that's why you have gravity fuel systems with high-wing aircraft. And then you have usually low-wing aircraft gravity-fed systems don't work because the fuel tanks are lower than the engine. So you need a pump to drive the fuel up into your engine. All right, let's first start talking about a pump-driven fuel system. In a pump-driven fuel system, the fuel is stored in the low-wings tanks that vent above and below the tanks. Generally, there is a tank overfill vent below the wing tank that can release vapor and fuel when the tank is too full, and a fuel cap vent that is included into the fuel cap and allows vapor to vent to the atmosphere. We talked about this, but I just wanna reiterate this for each of these systems. Attached to the engine is an engine-driven fuel pump that pumps fuel from the lower tanks anytime the engine is spinning. An electrical fuel pump is also used as a backup to the engine fuel pump or for engine start in critical phases of flight, like takeoff and landing, when you really want to make sure that you can get fuel to your engine. These pumps work to create a pressure differential that drives fuel up and out of the fuel tanks in the wings. As the fuel flows out of the wings, it passes through the fuel selector valve. The fuel selector valve can be set to left, right, or both or none on most aircraft. So that basically it's a valve which tells you which wing tank you're going to source from or both. The switch is found in the cockpit and is set by the pilot in command. Once the fuel selector valve determines which wing tank to source fuel from, the fuel flows into a fuel strainer or gas scalator. The strainer or gas gasculator collects water, sediment, and any small particles that may be in the fuel so that the fuel flowing past this point and into the cylinders contains nothing but clean fuel. If water gets into the cylinders, it it could extinguish the combustion and cause an engine out, as again I mentioned before. Small particles, on the other hand, can cause scoring on the piston walls that permanently damage the aircraft engine and cause an engine rehaul. The fuel continues past the gas gasculator or strainer and through the engine-driven and electrical fuel pumps into the fuel carburetor. Inside the carburetor is a Venturi tube, which uses Bernoulli's principles of flow to create a positive net flow up through the carburetor and into the cylinders of the engine. Bernoulli's principle we'll talk about when we get to talking about the fundamentals of flight and how lift is created. Anyways, a Venturi tube is a tube that has a section called a throat where the tube has a certain diameter and then that diameter gets smaller. And then again, it, then it expands again and that creates a pressure differential which causes the fuel to be sucked up through the carburetor. A fuel primer can also be part of the system and it will take clean fuel from after the gas scalator or strainer and allow the pilot to squirt clean fuel directly into the cylinders. This is done during a cold engine start because the starter may not be adequate enough in spinning the propeller shaft, moving the pistons and creating a positive pressure differential that brings fuel in through the carburetor. It won't create enough pressure and spin the engine enough to spin that engine fuel pump to get fuel in through the normal route through the carburetor. So you use a fuel primer to squirt some fuel into the cylinder so that there's already a little bit in there and you don't wanna do too much. And that's called flooding the engine. When you put too much, squirt too much into the cylinders, but you just want a little in there for the start so that when you do that, you when you use that starter, you're giving yourself enough fuel to start the engine. And if you do put too much in there, you're gonna have to wait for the fuel to drain in the cylinder, drain from the cylinder to try it again. Cause again, you'll be flooding the cylinder. And what's really happening is your fuel to air ratio is too rich, there's not enough air in that ratio and you're just never gonna get engine combustion. So if you're following along in the ground school, we have a great schematic of the pump driven system. So it's gonna have the wing tanks, Down low, the fuel flows into the fuel selector valve, and that determines where the fuel comes from, which tank it comes from. It goes into the fuel strainer or gas gasculator, into the electrical pump, into the engine-driven pump, then into the fuel carburetor, and up into the engine cylinders. Now, you'll also be able to see this in the video that I post in the show notes, so go and check that out so you can get this visual. It'll help a lot. Okay, so now let's talk about a gravity-fed fuel system. In a gravity-fed fuel system, the fuel is stored above the engine in the high wings tanks. Gravity-fed fuel systems only work with high wing tanks because the fuel must be above the engine in order for gravity to work on the fuel and move it down into the engine. Vents are again found above and below the wing in fuel caps and tank overfill vents. There may also be a tank-to-tank vent to equalize the pressure between the two tanks. There are no pumps creating a pressure differential to move the flow of fuel, but instead fuel travels downwards through the fuel feed lines due to gravity into the fuel selector valve. So it's the same thing. It moves into the fuel selector valve, but now everything's oriented so that gravity is causing the fuel to move and you have that natural pressure that gravity creates from the weight of the fuel and you don't need those fuel pumps to move it. Once the fuel selector valve has determined which wing tank to source the fuel from, the fuel continues through the valve and into the fuel strainer or gas scalator. Again, the strainer's purpose is to clean the fuel of any foreign substances. As the fuel flows through the strainer or gas scalator, it flows directly to the carburetor, which again, uses that Venturi tube we talked about, create that pressure differential and push fuel into the cylinders. And then again, we have a fuel primer also found in this gravity-fed fuel system that's after the fuel strainer or gas calculator that again can help pilots perform a cold start to get some fuel in there and start help with starting the engine. Gravity-fed fuel systems will often have an electrical or auxiliary pump. So even though, you know, we don't need pumps because we have that gravity system, usually aircraft are going to have an electrical or what they call an auxiliary pump to aid in starting the engine and during critical phases of flight, like takeoff and landing, where it's critical that the engine receive enough fuel. And when you're flying slow, you're getting ready for landing and when you're turning base to final and all that, sometimes your aircraft can be at an attitude that causes certain pockets of air and bubbles inside your fuel system, which might not lend to the best gravity-fed system, right? So the gravity might not work the best when you're when you're in a, a steep bank turn or flying slow or at a certain angle of attack. And that is another reason you want to have that auxiliary fuel pump or electrical fuel pump. But for the most part, gravity-fed fuel systems work pretty dang well. And as long as you're not like almost completely upside down or in a total crazy steep bank, it's usually going to work pretty well for you. All right, so that's the gravity-fed fuel system. One more kind of recap. If you are in the online ground school, go check out that that diagram, that schematic of the gravity-fed fuel system. You have the wing tanks up top. You have the fuel selector valve below that. Fuel flows into that. It determines, you know, which tank the fuel is going to come from. Then it goes down into the fuel strainer or gasculator through that and into the fuel carburetor and if there was and then into the from the carburetor it gets pushed up into the cylinders and if there was that auxiliary pump you'd find that after the fuel strainer or gasculator helping push that fuel into the fuel carburetor all right so that's been the fuel system hopefully you guys found that informational helpful hopefully i did a good job of painting that mental image If not, or again, because I recommend consuming all this content in multiple ways, go check out the video. I'll put it in the show notes. You can see those schematics of those different fuel systems. And we'll go over kind of the important facts of the fuel system, which I talked about earlier. That's in the show notes. So that's the fuel system. All right, let's move on to lesson 12. Again, we're in section two, operation of aircraft systems and lesson 12 going to be aircraft engine so we just talked about the fuel and oil system and now we're talking about the aircraft engine so where that fuel and oil goes to that's the aircraft engine and so let's get to it while every aircraft has a different and specific engine it's important that a pilot know the basics of their engine for the sake of explanation i will be using a cherokee warrior pa 28 as an example for the values of engine performance and measurements But be sure to know the exact values for your specific engine. This is gonna be comparable to a Cessna 172, but it might not be exactly the same, but you'll get the idea with the numbers. And to help yourself out, come up with your own mnemonic device to remember this information. Or Google it and see if there's one already out there for your specific aircraft. For a Cherokee Warrior, they have one called 4L Hand, which stands for four cylinder, lie combing, horizontally opposed. Air cooled, normally aspirated direct drive engine. And so it's some of the key things that you want to know about your engine, which we'll get to. But I came up with kind of a general mnemonic device that I call Pamper C Cough, which I'll explain below. And that's P A M P R C C O G H. Pamper C Cough. And let's get through it here. And I'll tell you what each one of those letters means and how you should know and the information you should know for each of them first two letters of pamper Seed cough are p and a and they stand for piston arrangement or pistons arranged how are the pistons arranged every combustion engine still uses pistons and cylinders and they can be arranged in a variety of ways for a warrior they are horizontally opposed which means two on the left and two on the right facing each other so that means when they are doing their engine cycle and the pistons are going in and out they're horizontally opposing each other's motion so that they limit the amount of uneven vibrations that they might get in the aircraft they're horizontally opposed and again this is the p and a of pamper seacoff how are your pistons arranged the next letter is m and that is manufacturer and model number of your engine for the warrior that i usually fly with the engine is made by lycoming and the model is o-320 Again, this is the M of Pamper cough, and it just depends on your aircraft, so you'll wanna know the manufacturer and the model number of the engine. The next letter is P of Pamper C cough, and that's what type of propeller do you have? Is the propeller two blades? Is it three blades? Is it fixed pitch? For most warriors and small aircraft that you will train with, the propellers are two blade and fixed pitch. The alternative to a fixed pitch is a controllable pitch prop, which helps a pilot keep performance efficiency at all atmospheric conditions. When we get to the propeller lesson, we'll talk more about that. But for now, just know you want to know whether it's fixed pitch or controllable pitch or variable pitch, as some people call it, and how many blades it has. Moving on, we go to the R of PAMPER-C cough. and this is going to stand for revolutions per minute what is the max rpm or revolutions per minute of your aircraft for the cherokee warrior that i use it's 2700 rpms this is going to be similar to again most general aviation trainer aircrafts but it will change slightly so know what it is for your aircraft again that's the r of pamper c cough the next one is going to be the c the first c And this stands for cylinders. How many cylinders is your engine? For a Warrior, there are normally four cylinders and they are, again, horizontally opposed. The pistons go in the cylinders and they're horizontally opposed, as we already talked about. But there's four of them. And that's the first C of Pamper C Cough. The next C, the second C, is how does the engine stay cool? So cooling is the second C. So oil helps the engine stay cool and lubricated, but there are other methods such as using air and circulated fuel to help keep the engine cool. In a Warrior, the engine is air-cooled. This is important to know if engine issues crop up in flight, if air-cooled and experiencing an overtemp you may want to pitch down to gain airspeed and airflow into the engine. So that's just an example of why it's important to know how your engine is cooled because one of the common engine issues is an overtemp and you want to know how you might be able to mitigate that in flight. Again, if it's air-cooled, you want to gain airspeed and try to get more air flowing into the engine compartment so that it cools down a bit. And again, this is the second C of Pamper C Cough. The next letter is going to be O. And that's oxidizer. How does the engine get its oxidizer? Combustion engines need three elements to work. It needs a propellant, an oxidizer, and a catalyst. Usually the propellant is your aviation-grade fuel, your oxidizer is air, and your catalyst is a spark from your spark plugs and magnetos. The way you receive your air can vary from aircraft to aircraft In a warrior or most small aircraft the engine is normally aspirated or the air is received using a carburetor like in a car which we will discuss further in this course again this is the o this is the oxidizer this is how we get our oxidizer and most aircraft are going to be normally aspirated and receive air using a carburetor the next one is going to be g of pamper cough second to last letter and that's going to be for gears does your engine use gears another mechanical element to be added to an aircraft and possible cause of failures is gears most warriors are considered to be direct drive which means no gears and the power created from the pistons is transferred directly to the propeller shaft so you want to know if you have gear reduction or anything like that in your engine or if there's some sort of gear system but for the cherokee warrior it's a direct drive which means no gears in power and all the power created from the pistons is directly transferred to the propeller shaft motion so again that's g of pamper c cough the last letter is h what is the horsepower of your engine again for the warrior it's 160 horsepower so whatever aircraft you have you'll want to know what the horsepower is And again, that's the H of Pamper Seacoff. So again, you may want to come up with a specific mnemonic device for your own aircraft. That's sort of just Pamper Seacoff is what I came up with for a general, what you should know for your own aircraft. Again, when I was training on my Cherokee Warrior, it was a Lycoming brand engine. And for that one, it was 4L hand. And that's a very common one I'll see online, which stands for, again, four-cylinder, light combing, horizontally opposed, air-cooled, normally aspirated, direct-drive engine. All right, so that has been the parts of an aircraft engine. There's a video, if you want to take a look at what these, these parts look like on an actual engine, to have some pictures on there and we point them out so that you can check these during your pre-flight check and see what the different components are in real life. I'll put that video in the show notes. And then let's continue on to engine ignition and combustion, the second section of this lesson. And yeah, so let's get to it. So the electrical system can be expanded to encompass the engine ignition system. The Cherokee Warriors ignition system is very common for small single engine aircraft. So I will again use it as an example. In a warrior, the pilot turns the ignition key, which ungrounds the magnetos via the ground wire. But pilots beware if this ground wire between the magneto and the ignition switch becomes disconnected, the engine could accidentally start if the propeller is moved with fuel in the cylinder. And I want to say this again. So pilots beware if this ground wire between the magneto and the ignition switch becomes disconnected the engine could accidentally start if the propeller is moved with fuel in the cylinder so i'm going to say this again if the ground wire between the magneto and the ignition switch becomes disconnected the engine could accidentally start if the propeller is moved with fuel in the cylinder so this is why you got to be very careful when whenever you move the propeller that's why they teach usually for student pilots to not ever do it to have a private pilot or certified mechanic do it for you but if you do have to do it you usually stand behind it and reach out your arm and push it in the direction that it needs to go and you just got to be very careful because if that ground wire is disconnected and there's fuel in the cylinder it could spark and draw in air and start the engine it's also why you want to make sure you always know where the keys are and that the keys aren't actually accidentally in the ignition because even if that ground wire isn't disconnected it, but you forgot that you had the keys in there and you turn that prop again same thing it could start and you could have a lot of problems so let's get back to it so in a warrior, the warrior pilot turns the ignition key which ungrounds the magnetos via the ground wire then the battery powers the starter which spins the flywheel and the flywheel spins the engine which finally spins the magnetos to create the spark inside the combustion chamber of each cylinder there are redundant magnetos one on the left and one on the right for each cylinder so in my warrior which is four cylinder there are eight total magneto wires four wires come off the left magneto one wire goes to the left forward left cylinder one wire goes to the forward right cylinder one wire goes to the aft left cylinder and one wire goes to the aft right cylinder Then four wires also come off the right magneto to the same four locations. This way there is a wire from each magneto at each of the four cylinders so that each cylinder can be provided a spark from each of the two magnetos. They are usually installed such that one spark is near the bottom of the cylinder and one spark near the top. The magnetos are set up this way to provide redundancy in the case of a magneto failure. That way you'll still have a spark from the other working magneto in each of your cylinders, in this case, each of your four cylinders. And for, and then also the reason why they have two sparks, one at the top, one at the bottom, is to improve engine performance. You get a cleaner combustion burn inside the cylinder, so that's also a reason to have multiple sparks in there. Two sparks at the top and bottom of each cylinder allow the fuel and air mixture to burn uniformly and on time, providing the most efficient piston cycle. All right, so the electric fuel pump provides the fuel as well as the primer. The engine is killed by simply cutting the mixture or the fuel to the cylinders. A student pilot should also know how an aircraft internal combustion engine works, at least the basics so how do the magnetos fuel system carburetor starter battery all that how do they all fit together to make an internal combustion engine work a student pilot should know should also know how an aircraft internal combustion engine works at least the basics so let's let's talk about that fuel from the fuel tanks flows to the carburetor where it's mixed with air so the carburetor fuel flows we talked about that in the fuel system lesson that we just talked about talked about how that fuel gets to the carburetor and the carburetor sucks it up into the cylinders. Well, in that carburetor, air is coming into that carburetor and that's where the fuel is mixed with the air. As a pilot turns the ignition switch, he or she is opening the electrical circuit from the battery to the aircraft starter when that ground wire is... Remember that ground wire we talked about? So that when they turn the ignition switch, that ground wire is ungrounded and it opens the electrical circuit from the battery to the aircraft starter the starter again powered by the battery spins a small gear which is mechanically connected to a flywheel the flywheel spins the propeller shaft and thus the propeller blades start turning so it spins a propeller shaft shaft which spins you'll start to see the propeller blades start to spin as you're doing this, as you're turning the key, you'll start to see the propeller blades slowly start spinning. That's the battery powering the starter, which drives a small gear, which is spinning a larger gear called the flywheel, which spins the propeller blades. And we can see this in a figure If you're following along in the online ground school, we have a schematic of the engine with the cylinders in red, the magnetos in black. We have all the magneto wires to show dual redundancy to each one of the cylinders. And then we have the ignition switch and the battery. We show that ground wire and we have how it's connected to the starter and the flywheel. And we even show the alternator. And then we have a zoomed in view, which shows the propeller, the flywheel, the the little gear that's connected to the starter, and a zoomed in view of the starter. It's a great image to sort of conceptualize this in your mind and something that I find very helpful. So go check that out in lesson 12 of section 2 of the online ground school. As the starter spins the propeller shaft, four separate sets of crank shafts and crank rods mechanically connected to the propeller shaft Convert the rotational motion of the propeller shaft into translational motion. That's motion to like the left or right side to side of the pistons in and out of each of the cylinders. So it takes... The shaft is spinning and these crankshafts and crank rods. And again, you can see a picture of this in the online ground school to show what those look like, those crank shafts and crank rods and how they actually do this taking rotational motion and making it translational motion, which is the pistons going in and out left to right of the cylinders. As a piston moves out, it expands the space within the cylinder and allows it to intake the mixture of fuel and air from the carburetor. This is called the intake stroke. Then when the piston moves in, it compresses this mixture. This is called the compression stroke. At the same time during an engine start, the ignition key held in the start position ungrounds the P-lead cable to the magnetos. This enables the magnetos to produce impulses of electricity that ends in a spark within each cylinder of the engine. The compression from the piston moving in plus the spark from the magnetos, magnetos creates combustion in the cylinder and this combustion is called the power stroke. Once combustion has been achieved, the exhaust valve opens and the intake valve closes, allowing the resulting gases of the combustion to be exhausted out of the cylinder. This is called the exhaust stroke. And then the cycle repeats with much much more force and speed as the engine's starting. So when you do this, you'll see the propeller kind of slowly spin, slowly spin, and you'll kind of hear it. And then once you get that combustion in each of the cylinders, you get that power stroke, then you'll see the spinning of the propeller rapidly increase very quickly and that is that increase because now you have it's running continuously that cycle is continuously going over and over again that four stroke cycle the energy of combustion then once you so once you have it started the energy of combustion pushes the piston back out which spins the propeller shaft even faster again by means of the crankshaft and crank rod and when that propeller shaft spins faster than the crankshaft and crank rod on the other side for the other two cylinders are going to push that piston uh, that piston in and out and so it's just a, a circular cycle of you know uh, two pistons creating combustion and spinning the propeller which causes the other two piston, pistons to get pushed in and then create combustion and then causes the propeller to f- spin faster and it's just a really cool design and a really ingenious way to uh, get propulsion and again, we have a figure in the online ground school kind of shows inside engine and what the cylinders kind of look like with the crankshaft and crank rod and those strokes. And so in that figure, you'll see that the pistons are aligned horizontally and oppose each other's motions. So that when one's going in and one, the other one's going out, and that's what it means when an engine is horizontally opposed. As the piston on the left moves in, the piston on the right moves out. This opposition causes stability in engine movements and vibrations. Once combustion is achieved, the ignition switch is usually left in the both position, which means that both magnetos are ungrounded and providing continuous sparks to the cylinders. At this point, the pilot should immediately adjust for the appropriate RPM and check their engine gauges. So I wanna say this again, because you might see this on an exam or get asked by your examiner. Once you achieve combustion and the is spinning up and you've got a good start immediately adjust for the proper rpm because you may in trying to get it started be at a higher rpm and if you're on the taxiway or still in you know near your ground school near other aircraft and people you want to adjust that to a safe rpm and then you want to check your engine gauges and make sure everything looks right the appropriate R- and again the appropriate rpm ensures not only that you keep people safe but you're not rolling out of your position at your flight school or club and also make sure you're not blowing rocks and dirt into people or aircraft. And then the engine gauges, the old temperature, oil pressure, fuel pressure, et cetera, will give the pilot an idea of the health of the engine right when you get started. It's all. And remember, the reason we do these pre-flight checks, these first engine start checks, and then the run-up checks is because we want to try and find any issue with these engines before we get in the air. And any ir- irregularity in these gauge regions should be caught now or in the run-up prior to takeoff again before we get in the air. The ignition switch can also be placed at left or right, which means only the left or right magneto will be active. Both magnetos will supply a spark to each of the cylinders in your aircraft engine, such that when both magnetos are active, each cylinder is getting two sparks. If only one magneto is working, each cylinder is only getting one spark. So now it's at this point that I think it's a good time to talk about the fuel to air mixture ratio or fuel air mixture so for you'll hear this a lot so let's explain it and then tell you why it matters for anything to burn it needs a fuel and an oxidizer for aircraft engines the fuel is avgas and the oxidizer is air every fuel and oxidizer burns most efficiently at a very specific ratio of the weight of the fuel to the weight of the oxidizer because the properties of air change with altitude density and therefore the amount of air the engine is receiving right because as we go up in altitude the density decreases density of air decreases that means less air is getting into our engine that means that the optimal fueled air mixture also changes with altitude because if you let's say you're you're sending in x amount of fuel right at sea level and that you keep sending the same amount of fuel into your engine when you get up to 10,000 feet, the air you're receiving and mixing with X amount of fuel with that same amount of fuel is so much lower. So your fuel to air ratio has changed and you're now much more rich. So let's do an example. Consider the most optimum fuel to air mixture of an aircraft on ground is two units of fuel to three units of air. And the aircraft mixture control is set to this ratio. The aircraft takes off and climbs to an altitude of 6,000 feet at this altitude the air is less dense and therefore less air is received by the cylinders of the engine but the engine is still receiving the same amount of fuel so if the air density decreased by 50 percent the engine is now receiving just 1.5 units of air remember we were receiving two units of fuel and three units of air so if the air density decreased by 50 percent, that means the amount of air has decreased by 50%. So now instead of three units, we have one and a half units of air. So now the fuel to air ratio is two to 1.5, where it was two to three. This is called now a rich mixture, more fuel than air or more fuel than your ideal mixture ratio. The combustion is no longer at its optimum setting. And the only way to get it back is to reduce the amount of fuel in the mixture or lean the mixture by pulling back on the mixture control. You can't change the amount of air you're getting. That's just dependent on the altitude you're flying. So the only thing we can do is we can lean the mixture and give our engine less fuel so that it matches back up with that that optimum ratio that our engine wants. If a pellet does this slow enough, so they pull back the mixture control. If they do it slow enough, they can see the RPM slowly start to rise. If the pilot continues to reduce the amount of fuel in the mixture, the RPM will drop sharply because it simply doesn't have enough fuel. So it's a very small area, optimal point. And if this happens, you know, if you get to if you're lowering the amount of fuel, you're leaning the mixture and then you get a sharp drop in RPM, the pilot should you should immediately reduce Stop reducing the fuel in the mixture and begin to increase it slightly from this point to get back near the optimum mixture ratio. So you can kind of see, you can kind of play with it. You'll lower the fuel to air ratio by leaning it. So you'll lean back on it and then you'll kind of watch your RPM. It should rise, rise, rise. And then once it gets to a point where it drops, that's basically add just a little bit more and that's the the optimum place you want to be at that altitude. And this is gonna make sure that your aircraft is flying at its most efficient fuel to air ratio. Another important thing to know about the fuel to air mixture is the relationship it has with engine temperatures. The leaner the mixture, meaning more air, the hotter the combustion temperature until a certain point where there's simply too much air and the combustion can no longer occur. And the richer the mixture, or the more fuel, the cooler the combustion temperature. And that's important to know if a pilot ever experiences high engine temperatures so that they can know to add more fuel and enrich the mixture in order to cool the combustion. So remember, there's a couple tips and tricks that we've now given you. If you ever find your situation and you know your engine, let's say you have an air-cooled engine that uses you know, a carburetor-type injection system you can, and you get high engine temperatures, you can... You know, pitch down to increase your airspeed and increase the cooling on your engine, the air cooling on your engine. And you can also enrich your mixture just a little bit. You don't want to enrich it too much so that you completely flood your engine or, or anything like that. But enrich it a little bit and a little bit at a time to see if you can get that engine temperature down. All right. So that's a good segue into engine problems now we have a good now that we've done kind of done with the, how the engine aircraft engines work we have a video on that which kind of shows those diagrams I was telling you about so i want you to go and take a look at that if you're in the ground school you can read through that you can see the diagrams and see those videos in there but i'll also post a link to the video um, for those that are not in the ground school in the show notes and the, this video is called how aircraft engines work but before we end this lesson, I want to talk about engine problems, common engine problems, and what it means to you as a pilot. Aircraft dashboards are equipped with, generally equipped with, engine oil pressure, engine oil temperature, and RPM gauges for a pilot to understand the health of their engine at all times. You also might have a fuel pressure gauge. A pilot should check their engine gauges periodically throughout a flight. Any drop or rise in engine temperature or pressure should put you on high alert in some scenarios the situation may point to a faulty gauge but personally if i see high or low engine pressure or temperature i am going to treat it as an emergency immediately and get back to earth safely and as soon as possible in reality the most dangerous scenarios are high oil temperature with low low oil pressure or high oil temperature with high oil pressure. In both these scenarios, the engine is overheating due to a possible variety of things. Excessively high engine temperatures, either in the air or on the ground, will cause a loss of power, excessive oil consumption, and possible permanent internal em- engine damage. So again, I'm gonna repeat that because this is a question on the FAA written and something that you'll examine or wanna, wanna make sure you know. Excessively high engine temperatures, either in the air or on the ground, will cause a loss of power, excessive oil consumption, and possible permanent internal engine damage. In these scenarios, a pilot should declare an emergency immediately and focus on getting the aircraft safely to the ground. Increasing your airspeed will provide more air through air cooling ducts inside your air cooled engine. Pilots may also enrich the mixture to aid in cooling an overheating engine as we talked about. The higher fuel air ratio creates lower combustion temperatures and reducing any sort of climb is also important since you will want the least amount of stress on your engine. Reducing your angle of attack should also increase your airspeed, which also helps aid in cooling the engine through the air cooling system. Here are some of the situations and what they might mean to an aircraft engine. The first one is high engine oil pressure and high engine oil temperature. It is extremely rare, if not impossible, for both temperature and pressure gauges to be faulty. Instead, assume that something is wrong with the engine immediately when you have both high engine oil and high engine oil temperature. A blocked oil line could be causing the high oil pressure, and because no oil is getting to the engine, high engine oil temperature as well. However, the most likely cause of high cylinder temperature and pressure is using fuel that has a lower than specified fuel rating. This is a situation to declare an emergency and get down as soon as possible. So if you remember when we talked about our fuel system and we talked about how it's okay to use a higher octane rating if you don't have the specified rating that if you have to put fuel that's not specified for your aircraft that in some cases it's okay to go to a higher rating but to never go to a lower rating this is why it will cause high cylinder temperatures and pressures when you do that and in this situation you want to declare an emergency and get down as soon as possible the next situation is high engine oil pressure and normal or low engine oil temperature while not an immediate emergency to see high engine oil pressure a pilot and i would divert to land and you should divert to land when you see high engine oil pressure and normal engine oil temperature this could be caused by a bad valve obstruction in the oil line or just a faulty engine oil pressure gauge. If the oil temperature begins to rise, then the problem is becoming worse and the pilot should land as soon as possible. We talked about high engine oil pressure and high engine oil temperature could be caused by some problem with the oil line. While seeing high engine oil pressure and normal engine oil temperature may just be you catching that issue right at the beginning. The temperature is just hasn't had a chance yet to get high because it's still cycling that oil that it does have but at over a few minutes it's going to run out of that oil and it's going to start to get high too so if you see high engine oil pressure be sure to keep a really keen eye on the engine oil temperature as well and divert as soon as possible the next one is high engine oil temperature and normal engine oil pressure so this is the opposite This situation is difficult to know for sure what's going on. It's best to err on the side of safety and caution and divert to the nearest airport. That's what I would do. You're well within your rights to declare an emergency in this situation. High temperature and normal pressure could be something as simple as a hot day, a long climb, or too long in the slow flight configuration, which is high power, low airspeed, so a lot of stress on the engine, and it causes poor engine cooling during that high power, high stress time. And in some older aircraft, the electrical load can cause a high temperature gauge reading. It's worth it to check your circuit breakers and reduce the electrical load where you can if you see this high oil temperature and normal engine oil pressure can also mean that the oil supply is low this is why a pilot has to follow their pre-flight checklist for every single flight so that they can check that the oil level is not too high and or not too low and check for any leaks it has to have the deal amount of oil for every flight the wrong oil may also cause high oil temperature So you could have the right amount of oil, but it could be the wrong oil. So that's another thing that you want to make sure to check that you're always putting in the right oil. And it's hard to check what kind of oil you have, unfortunately. So this is just something that you have to trust in your flight school and your flight club and just be really keen that making sure that everyone is using the right oil. Finally, running the engine at high power and too lean of fuel air mixture can also cause high oil temperatures. Remember we talked about when you lean the fueled air mixture, you get hotter engine temperatures. So this could cause the oil that's going around the engine, lubricating it and cooling it to get it get too hot. A too lean mixture for a particular phase of flight will cause hotter combustion temperatures and this heat will transfer into the rest of the engine and cause the engine oil temperature to rise a pilot should never lean the mixture during climb and generally not when you are using 80 percent or more power to lean a fuel air mixture at high power settings heats the cylinders to a point that it can cause permanent engine damage via detonation detonation and pre-ignition which are other issues that we will talk about There's always the possibility of a faulty engine oil temperature gauge as well, but the most important thing to do is divert to a nearby airport and have a mechanic take a deeper look before flying again. So again, we talked about, I just want to kind of go back, we talked about leaning the mixture when you get up to altitude, but you never want to lean the mixture during climb and generally not when you're using more than 80% of power. So that is a... Very important caveat because you can get these two high engine temperatures. So you only want to lean the mixture when you're in nice, easy cruise flight and you're not performing climbs. So something to look out for and be careful of and always keep an eye on your engine oil temperature gauge. All right. The next one is high engine oil temperature and low, low engine oil pressure. This is the worst possible situation for your aircraft. It is extremely unlikely that both gauges have a faulty reading. A pilot should immediately declare an emergency in this situation to get the aircraft down as fast as possible because the engine is dying, if not already dead in this situation. This situation likely started with a low engine oil pressure reading before the oil temperature began to rise due to the lack of oil being able to cool the engine. We kind of talked about this before. This could have caused been caused by a variety of things, such as an an obstruction in the oil line, a busted valve, gasket, seal, or oil line itself. Or simply, the aircraft could just be low on oil or using the wrong type of oil, again, as we mentioned. Oil temperature could also read high before the oil pressure goes low. In this situation, you are likely seeing a hot engine burn up all the oil until the oil pressure decreases. So excessively high engine temperatures, either in the air or on the ground, will cause a loss of power, excessive oil consumption, and possible permanent internal damage. So again, excessive high engine temperatures you wanna avoid them because they can burn up all your oil, they'll cause a loss of power, and then they'll cause permanent internal engine damage. All right, the final situation. Low engine oil pressure, and low or normal engine oil temperature. This situation is safe to call an emergency. A faulty engine oil pressure gauge is possible, but unlikely since there are a variety of other possible causes that could mean very, very bad news. A loss of pressure means that the oil lines are not holding oil at the location of the oil pressure probe. This can be caused by an obstruction in the oil line, a blown gasket, broken seal, or broken oil line when it comes down to it when a pilot sees low engine oil pressure they should assume the engine is not getting oil when the engine does not get oil an engine failure is on its way engine oil is the blood of the engine and when you don't have oil it's going to die if the oil pressure continues to decrease and is accompanied with an oil temperature increase then the engine has already begun to fail and a pilot should land as soon as possible the situation is definitely worthy of declaring an emergency. So when you see low engine oil pressure, even if you have low or normal engine oil temperature, you can expect, if the situation is real, you can expect that oil temperature to slowly start rising, rising, rising if you continue to fly because that means your engine has no oil and it. it's just going to get hotter and hotter and hotter until it dies. So... If for some reason you did have a bad oil pressure gauge, it could be possible, then you wouldn't end up seeing your temperature rise. That would point point to a bad gauge, but I would definitely not risk that, and I would declare an emergency and get down as soon as possible. Again, to have a mechanic decide whether or not, I'm not going to test this out while I'm flying up there. I'm going to get back, I'm going to land safely, and I'm going to get this checked out before that engine dies. Okay, so we mentioned these briefly in a couple of those scenarios, but detonation and pre-ignition, what are those and what kind of things will you be asked or do you need to know about them? Let's start with detonation. Detonation, or engine knock as it's called sometimes, is an explosion of the fuel-air mixture in the cylinder of an aircraft engine. Detonation occurs In reciprocating engines, usually at high power settings when the fuel mixture ignites instantaneously instead of burning progressively and evenly. So, I'm gonna say that again. And for some reason, saying the word detonation, I don't know if I'm saying it weird, but it just sounds really weird when I'm saying it. Detonation, detonation. I don't know. All right, let me say this again. Detonation occurs in reciprocating engines. Usually at high power settings when the fuel mixture ignites instantaneously. So you have that fuel air mixture going into the cylinders. And instead of burning progressively, it gets that spark and it burns progressively throughout that cycle of the the stroke of the piston. It ignites instantaneously. It detonates. That is what's called engine knock or detonation. Normally, the fuel air mixture inside an aircraft cylinder It's ignited by the spark at the top and bottom of cylinder. The spark causes a controlled burn that times well with the stroke of the piston. If detonation occurs, the fuel air mixture explodes and the burn is not smooth and continuous, but instead forceful and abrupt. This abrupt and violent explosion causes vibrations, noise, high cylinder temperature, and even complete engine failure. So imagine... The propeller shaft and all those pistons are working off the propeller shaft are spinning around that and they're working in unison. And the propeller shafts are, they're working off this this rhythm and timing of these cylinders and the, the mixture in there burning, burning smoothly. And if you get one engine cylinder that doesn't burn smoothly and instead burns, detonates instantly, it's going to interrupt that rhythm right and that cylinder is going to be pushed back or entered into that exhaust stroke too early or that combustion stroke too early before it's in the right position and it's going to cause a lot of weird vibrations noise and it's going to end up starting to cause high cylinder temperatures because of that instant explosion and and the rhythm and the exhaust stroke and all that has been interrupted. High cylinder temperatures and wrong fuel or lower octane fuel are likely causes of engine detonation. I think I'm saying it better. Detonation. I'm not saying the detonation. (laughs) I don't know why I've been reading a detonation when I say detonation. I don't know. I'm sorry if I'm completely blowing this, but let's get back to it. So high cylinder temperatures and wrong fuel or like we talked about that lower octane rating fuel are likely causes of engine detonation. High cylinder temperatures can be caused by using a lean fuel air mixture during high power settings like in climb which we talked about or by using carb heat during high power settings such as climb since the hot air from the carb heat intake leads to higher cylinder temperatures. Hot air coming in to burn leads to higher cylinder temperatures after after the burn. If a pilot suspects that the engine, particularly in an aircraft with a fixed pitch prop, is detonating during climb following takeoff, the initial corrective action is to lower the nose in order to increase the airspeed and increase the ability to air cool the engine. So I'll talk I'll say that one more time cuz this is something you might be tested on. The initial corrective action is to lower the nose in order to increase airspeed and increase the ability to air cool the engine when you suspect that the engine is detonating during climb following a takeoff. And again, detonation is the abrupt violent explosion that causes vibrations, noise, high cylinder temperatures, and even complete engine failure. All right. Now, the last one is I want to talk about is called pre-ignition. Pre-ignition is defined as fuel-air mixture combustion that begins before it is intended to. Normally, the spark ignites the fuel-air mixture at a precise time in the combustion cycle in order to get a controlled burn and smooth engine stroke from maximum power and efficiency. Pre-ignition is the uncontrolled firing of the fuel-air charge in advance of normal spark ignition. So again, we talked about how detonation can sort of interrupt that rhythm of the pistons and the propeller shaft and all that right it really relies on a good rhythm to maintain temperatures and maintain low vibrations and any anything dangerous like that and when it detonates it can disrupt that rhythm pre-ignition is just like that in that it it interrupts that rhythm but it's not caused by the instantaneous burning that detonation is it's caused by so in detonation it still starts with the spark it gets the spark from the magneto and then it detonates the whole fuel air mixture but pre-ignition is when it ignites before you even get a spark so pre-ignition again is the uncontrolled firing of the fuel air charge in advance of normal spark ignition pre-ignition can be caused by detonation hot spots so if you've had detonation before, sometimes they, they come in, in pairs, right? You have detonation and it creates such high engine cylinder temperatures inside the cylinders that you get these little hot spots and they're so hot that anytime fuel air comes in, it just ignites it and it doesn't even wait for the spark because those hot spots on inside the cylinder uh, are hot enough to cause ignition without any spark. Pre-ignition can also be caused by other means such as a bad or wrong spark plug and hot carbon deposits in the cylinder. Most pre-ignition scenarios start at the beginning of the compression stroke, which causes severe stress on the engine and even could even burn a hole in the cylinder or piston. Pre-ignition is very serious and can cause an engine failure. So talked a little bit about hot carbon deposits in the cylinder this is one of the reasons during your run-up you do a magneto check you check that your engine runs smoothly and you get the expected amount of rpm on each magneto you want to check for things like this check for that your spark plugs are working correctly your magnetos are working correctly and sometimes if you if your magneto is not working correctly it'll have carbon deposits that it's making it so that it won't spark correctly. And then if you fly with those, the carbon deposits can actually end up getting really hot. And you're not getting a spark from that that spark plug because it's completely covered in carbon deposits. But the other spark plug, remember there's two in each, each cylinder, will provide you enough combustion to, to fly the aircraft and to get combustion in that cylinder. But once you have enough combustion, it's going to heat that carbon deposit so much that it's like that hot spot we talked about that just pre-ignites the fuel air mixture all the time. So, again, that's why we check these things before we fly. All right. So that has been lesson 12 of Section 2 on aircraft engines. It's been a lot. And we also went over fuel. So I want to thank you guys for listening. I hope it was very helpful. Again, please check out the videos in the show notes so you can get that visual. And if you're in the online ground school, you'll be able to read all this, watch the video, see the diagrams that I talked about. And then I want you to go ahead and take the quiz. And let's see how you do on the quiz. And in the next lesson, the next lesson is going to be lesson 13. We're going to talk about carb heat. We kind of mentioned carburetor heat, and that if you're using carburetor heat in high power situations, like in climb, that it could lead to some of these engine issues we'll talk about what carb heat is and why we need it because of carb ice but we'll talk about that and then we might get into lesson 14 which talks about the propeller and we again we kind of started talking about the propeller we had a fixed pitch prop and we had a variable or controlled pitch prop we'll talk about the difference between the two and what they mean for you as a pilot in lesson 14 and then like I said, carb heat in lesson 13. I think we'll be able to get through both. We might even be able to get to lesson 15, which is on antennas. So again, we'll see you for that on the next episode of the Audio Ground School. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you next week. Hey guys, it's Nick. I want to take a second to speak directly to the student pilots out there. You might be a student pilot that is you know, wondering what to do next, how to get started, or maybe you're looking for the right ground training or flight training, or maybe you've already started ground training or flight training and you're stuck, you're in a rut and you're looking for a change, something to help get you out of that hurdle. From my own experience in flight training, after three years, five instructors and $22,000 in and wanting to quit multiple, multiple times, and then now, after seeing hundreds and hundreds of student pilots through part-time pilot, I've realized that the number one thing that makes student pilots fail is that they do not have a good fundamental understanding of the ground training when they get to the more advanced flight lessons. Now, who here has seen Top Gun Maverick? Do you remember in the movie when he says, don't think, just do? Now, when I heard this, I was like, oh my goodness, this is brilliant, because this is exactly what you have to be as a pilot. Now, of course, it's not that we're not thinking, but it's that we understand things like weather, aerodynamics, what our instruments are telling us, what ATC is telling us. We have such a good core fundamental understanding of these things that we don't have to think about them. And when we don't have to think about them, we can instinctively feel and fly the aircraft, look out for dangers and avoid emergency situations. If we do have to think about these things it's going to put us behind mentally and we're going to be behind the aircraft and when you're behind the aircraft mentally bad things happen and this happens when you don't have a good understanding of the ground school content so now the first 10 to 15 hours of your flight training can go smooth even if you don't have a good understanding of ground training, right you can go up for a discovery flight have a blast you can go up learn how to take off learn how to land you maybe even able to solo for the first time fly a plane for the first time everything's great and damn once you get into you know bad weather flying or flying at heavy heavily trafficked airports or speaking with atc for bravo clearance or cross-country flight planning and flying solo on a cross-country flight things get a little more advanced and when this happens and you don't have a good understanding of the ground school concepts you're going to hit a wall you're going to start to get behind the aircraft not even miss a beat and be able to pay for flight training without working. So most of us have a full time job or maybe a part time job. We have kids, we have family, we have school. We have all these other responsibilities on top of flight training. And most of these flight trainings and ground trainings are not tailored towards you. And so how is it the part-time pilot tailors to the modern day student pilot? Well, the first way we do that is by keeping ground school interesting. or you can take our quizzes and practice tests to reinforce what you just learned. And then finally, you can join us live weekly for our live Q&A and our live lessons so you can see in real time these things taught out and these examples done in real time. And then finally, you can utilize our group community Either their FAA written or their FAA checkride, so that is just proof in the pudding right there that our concepts, the way we explain things in plain written English, and the way we give you multiple ways to consume this content is working. So if this sounds like something you might be interested in and you want to come join us, we'd love to have you. Just go to www.parttimepilot.com, click on Online Ground School, and we will see you inside the Online Ground School. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you guys next week.